You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Stuff. Go ahead and clap. That's fine. That's good. That's something to clap for. Uh, I told the first service this morning uh, that uh, a number of years ago, a dear friend of mine uh, invited Laura and I to go to France with them. They were going to pay for the entire trip and, and going into Paris. And my wife's an artist, so she wanted to go to the Louvre and see Notre Dame and places like that. And he said, James, what, what's the number one thing you want to do? I said, man, it, it isn't in Paris. I said, I want to go to the beaches of Normandy. I've always wanted to be there. And he, so we took a two-day trip to the beaches of Normandy while we were in France. And we got there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was overcast. It was misty that day. So it had the, kind of that mystical feel about it anyway. And, and I stood there right above Normandy Beach, which the, was the main, uh, the largest in, uh, invasion part of, the, of D-Day. And right there next to is still that uh, <clears throat> gun emplacement with walls about two feet thick of concrete where that gun was emplaced. And as these soldiers, young soldiers, 19, 20 years old, were coming out of those boats. They were just mowing them down. And right behind you, when you're standing there, is the National Cemetery with literally thousands of white crosses and stars of David lined perfectly up in order. And it was, without a doubt, it was the most, one of the most chilling and awe-inspiring moments I've ever experienced in my entire life, just to think about how anyone was able to survive that and the this incredible sacrifice that, that took place. I'm reading a book right now about the war of my generation, which was Vietnam, and, and the helicopter pilots who were, most of the helicopters in, in Vietnam were, were piloted by, not by commissioned officers, but were warrant officers in the Army. And they were 18-year-old kids, got out of high school, put them through a year of flight school, and then sent them to Vietnam when they were 19 years old. And at 19 and 20 years old, these young men were flying into hot LZs, pulling out the the wounded carrying in supplies. It's phenomenal the kinds of things that the human being is able to do when they have to, but it's a horrible thing that we have to, isn't it? Yep. It's a horrible thing, uh, but we should never, we should never, never forget. And that's the purpose of Memorial Day. That's right. It is to never, never forget. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of systematic theology. We're going through the major doctrines of the faith one at a time and seeing what the Bible says about that holistically and in that systematic theology study, we've come to the most controversial of all of the doctrines of the faith and in the entire Bible, and that is the doctrine of man. We call it anthropology, which means the study of man. And we put an afternote in the title, which says total depravity. That's what the Bible says about mankind, total depravity. And the reason that this is dangerous and the reason I guess that it has is so controversial is because when we are talking about the doctrine of man, we are talking about humanity. And when we are talking about humanity's God, we are talking about humanity. That's right. Because humanity is humanity's God. In other words, man is man's God. When he rejects the true and the living God, then he will adopt himself as a God. That is the basis of, of humanism today, which is a, uh, an ideology and philosophy that is rampant throughout humankind. 
and that always has been, to elevate ourselves to the position of God. And nobody, nobody likes to hear their God talk badly about, right? And so if you've kind of viewed yourself as your own God, then you don't really want to hear somebody speak negatively about your God, which is about you. We don't like to hear it. I remember hearing the story of a man who went to the doctor, wasn't feeling well, and after the examination, the doctor came in and said, sir, I, I don't really know any way, easy way to do this, but I'm just going to just say it right out. I'm afraid you're going to die. And the man said, wow, really, doc? He said, he said man, I, I want a second opinion. The doc said, okay, you're ugly too. <laughs> he didn't like the first truth that he was going to die, and he didn't like the second truth that he was ugly. And everything in man, everything in us, rebels about hearing God's truth about how God views us. Why? It's because God tells us that when we set ourselves up as a false God, which is self, that God is going to die and He's ugly to boot. Mm. And so as we go into this thing this morning, I want you to understand that, th that everything in us fights against the full and complete acceptance of what God's Word says about mankind. Now, I have an assignment for you, and I would like for you to take it seriously. I would like each one of you this week, if you would, to go to your Bible, go to your concordance, go to every study aid that you possibly can find, go on the Internet and show me one verse, one verse in the entire Bible where God says man is good. There's not. In fact, I said in the first service, I was going to say I'd eat my shorts, but I said, I'll eat Derek's shorts if you, can bring, if you can bring me one. And then I said, no, I won't do that. I'll just tell you what I lied. Because I, I have full confidence that you can't do it because there is not a verse in the entire Word of God where God says of us, oh, you're so good. You're so good. And so there is one way you can know much of the teaching and preaching that's going around in America today is heresy because it's based upon emphasizing the goodness of people and just wanting to lift people up and all that kind of stuff. That is antithetical to what God's Word actually says. And there's some important reasons why it is antithetical and there's some important reasons why we need to fully understand the total depravity of mankind from God's perspective but first of all, Derek is going to define total depravity for us. So we're talking about total depravity this morning, and I just want to say up front, let's just do a little house cleaning. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want you to take your phone out, okay? And I want you to go to wherever you keep your calendar, and just scroll down to June 6th, that's next Sunday, and mark on there, give City on a Hill a second chance. <laughs> just... I was wondering where you were going with that. You didn't do that in the first I didn't, service. I didn't. Yeah. It occurred to me, though, this is a weird Sunday to come for the first time. All right, check out this new cool church. And what did they talk about? Sin. Man, yeah. Total depravity. Total depravity. So um, what does it mean? There are really two different ways of thinking about humanity as a whole. Okay. One, and the popular secular view, is that man is basically good. Right In general, they're capable of bad things, but man in general is good. That, that it just needs to be drawn out of them. You know, we need to kind of get them in the right context, and then they'll, they'll do the right thing. Right, Man is in general good. And what I like to, to, to say to people who hold this view is, is, do me a favor, go home and take all the locks off of your doors and your cars. Yeah. Right? If man is basically good, why are you locking your home at night? How many of you locked your car on the parking lot? How many, right. of you, how many of you bikers locked the, the, the front wheel on your bike? Yeah. 
Well, you're at church. You ought to be able to trust people at church. Yeah, granted, this is this church, right? Oh, this, this so is this church. Okay, so I understand. A little different, but... <laughs> But, uh, right, so you, so if you lock your doors, then you likely ascribe to the second view and the biblical view of humanity, which is the view that man is totally depraved, that man is totally depraved. But the question is, what does that mean? What does that really mean when we say that? It's a term that you have heard before, used a lot around here in our teaching for sure, but there's a lot of confusion regarding what it means and what it doesn't mean. So we need a good definition because here in a moment, we're going to talk for really the, the majority of the time about why this is an important doctrine for us to understand. There's, an, there's actually a practical application for understanding this doctrine. But if we're going to understand why it's important, we first have to understand what it even means when we say it. And so in order to understand total depravity, we have to go all the way back to our definition of sin, because total depravity and sin work hand in hand together. How do we define sin? A kind of a simple definition is uh, missing the mark or falling short. These are, these are very good, simple, but good definitions. The idea here is that God sets a target for us to hit, and that target is the moral life that He desires us to live, that He has revealed in His Word. And sin is any time we draw that arrow back to hit that target, but we miss. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short. You have sinned. It's a simple definition, but a good one. But I want this morning to give you one that is a bit more complete, that has a little more complexity to it, because in, I think, understanding the complexity of this definition, we will get a better understanding as a whole of what it means when we say total depravity. You could define sin this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. That's why I like this definition. This is actually a, a theologian named Wayne Grudem's uh, definition. Wayne Grudem, if you don't know the name, look him up. He's someone to know. Um, I like it because it makes this distinction of these three categories that sin operates in. Not just our actions, not just our attitudes, but in our nature. Often when we think of sin, we think of it in, in terms of action, right? Something that you have done or something that you have not done. And that is sin. And certainly that's a way of thinking about it. It's, it's again, missing the mark concept. But sin is far more encompassing than that when you break it down. So let me give you a truth. This is a way you can think of it based on that definition. Sin is not just bad actions or attitudes, but a corrupt nature. Okay? Sin is not just bad actions or attitudes, but a corrupt nature. One way we like to say it around here is you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Okay? There's a distinction there. You didn't become a sinner because you sinned for the first time. It's like, like I said in the first service. Yeah. Why does the bee sting? Yeah. Because it's a bee. Because he's a bee. That's what bees do. That's what they do. Why do people sin? <clears throat> because you're a sinner. So you have a corrupt nature inwardly, and that nature works itself out. It exposes itself through actions and attitudes. Now the question becomes, when did you inherit this nature? Mm. When did this all go wrong for you? Right? Was it what, around three or four or five or six or, or before that or later than that? The it Bible. A, it was about teen, teen about, years. About teens, yeah, yeah when about you turn 12, 13, 13 when you yeah, lose your soul. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. then it comes back in the mid 20s sometimes. So the Bible tells us that it was before you were even born, oh. when you were conceived in the womb. Psalm 51 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. 1 Kings 8.46 says, For there is no man who does not sin. Now the question is why? Why why is there no man that, that does not sin? It's because all of us have a corrupted, sinful nature. And that nature works itself out through actions and attitudes. Ephesians 2.3, Paul says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. So by nature, not by action, by nature, you are children of wrath. So we have the sinful nature, and that nature is exposed through actions and attitudes, but that's still not super clear. I think we could do a little bit better. So let me give you two guiding principles regarding total depravity. Number one, total depravity says no one is capable of doing good in its purest form. Okay? And that's a key word, purest. No one is No one is capable of doing good in its purest form. There's a common misconception about total depravity that says that people are are not capable of doing any form of good at all. And and I I would reject that. From a human perspective, certainly you have witnessed it. You have seen people uh, go through various acts of kindness towards one another. Like like me allowing him up here on the stage with me. And like me allowing him to participate at all. I mean, it's it's like, it's, it's... we're kind individuals, right? We're really good guys. We are. We're very good guys. You've seen various acts of charity, various acts of sacrifice, right? So from our perspective, there is some good that we see people engaging in. But understand this. Even those good things are tainted. They're stained. There is always some impure motive at play. People who give a lot and, and are on the spotlight for being charitable. There's this, there's this idea of being seen for the giving nature, the, the generosity. What a generous guy I am. I mean, it makes me feel so good and about And it makes myself. me feel so good about it. And, and that brings up the second point, which is even if you're doing it in a, in a discreet manner where no one knows that you're doing those things, there's still that inward tug of self-justification that, man, I know I messed up a few things this week and I did this and I did that, but you know what? I, I gave a lot of money this I'm week, right? I'm, I'm a, a good, good guy. Person. I'm a good boy. Absolutely. So there's always an impure motive at work. There's no good things that are truly, in their purest forms, good. And the problem with this is that for us, we don't always see those impure motives going on. But you know who does? Mm. Who's the old Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, so he sees the motives, and from his perspective, no one then is good. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In fact, some of your translations say filthy rags. Now, this is not to be too descript here, but, but the terminology is intended to, to kind of make you go, ugh. The, the, the term polluted garment or filthy rag in the Old Testament is a term that indicates menstrual rags. So this is what God is drawing out with this, is that your righteous behavior, your righteous deeds, your good things that make you feel so self-justified, they're like filthy rags before God. Mm. They're, they're not good or righteous at all. So total depravity says that no one, not a single person, save Jesus, is capable of doing good in its purest form. But also, second, everyone Mm. is capable of doing evil in its purest form. Okay? We're all capable because we are all bent towards evil, once again, by our corrupted nature. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. 
For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the unsaved individual apart from Christ, the mind is not just neutral. It's not Rene Descartes' tabula rasa. It is hostile towards God. It is planning and scheming against Him. Genesis 8.21 says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We are all bent towards hostility towards God. And because of this nature then, we are capable of evil in its purest form. I think there's a tendency that, especially in Christian circles, for us to look at certain individuals and elevate them into a, a, an especially evil category. People like Adolf Hitler, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson. And so what we'll do is we'll lift them into this especially evil category and go, man, these are like the, you know, the really bad ones. Makes right? us feel pretty good about ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And to be clear, they are especially evil. They are not in an especially evil category. They're in an especially human category. Mm-hmm. Because save the grace of God in our lives, we're no different than they are. That's the thing you got to understand, that, that the worst individuals in the history of mankind that have waged the, the most evil atrocities upon humanity are no different than your precious grandmother, <laughs> sweet little grandmother. Given or, the right set of choices and circumstances, Granny could be Hitler. She could. She could. Some of y'all are like, Granny was Hitler, right? <laughs> <laughs> my Granny wasn't. My Granny was precious, but... Some of them are mean, right? So I'm telling you, I'm still stuck on <laughs> Rene Descartes that you threw. Yeah, out you like there. that? That was just I mean, off. I that don't know. just went right over most, most people's, people's heads. Probably did. Probably did. Total depravity says that apart from the grace of God, we're no different. So that 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 no one can say that they have done good in its purest form, and yet everyone can say that we're capable of evil in its purest form. Now, Amen. now that you understand a little bit better what total depravity means. Let's talk about why it matters. This is why we do this. We're not here this morning talking about sin to make everybody feel guilty, to make everybody feel bad. No, there is actually a positive reason for understanding because there are things that you will not understand about who God is and what He has done until you fully grasp who you are and what you are capable of doing from God's perspective. So it matters a great deal to us to understand where we are from God's perspective. And there are three things I want to talk about real quick, two of them, and then I'll wrap it up with him. The first thing you cannot understand is the depth of God's grace until you understand the depth of your own depravity. Until we understand the depth of our depravity, we cannot understand the depth of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes from there to verse 2 and 3. He talks about those trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4 and 5, he comes back to the solution. He says, but God. So here it is. So you were dead in trespasses and sins. Talks about the sins. Verse 5, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. So Paul's reason for helping us understand where we are in trespasses and sins, that we are dead, so that we can understand the magnificence of the grace of God. Now notice in verse 1, he doesn't say that because of sin we came into this world kind of on life support. 
we weren't totally dead, but we were really hurting pretty bad. Or He doesn't say that because of sin and trespasses, we're wounded. He doesn't say that we're simply sick. He says we are dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. That means unresponsive. That means non-revivable. Now what death is he talking about? Well, obviously he's not talking about our physical death because the very ones he's writing this to are physically alive. They're going to be reading it. And so he's obviously speaking about spiritual death. That we are born with this sin nature that has caused us to be spiritually dead. To be spiritually unresponsive. We have no capacity within our nature to respond to God. We are spiritually non-resuscitatable. We are spiritually incapacitated. We have no capacity for a spiritual response to God. We are spiritually dead. Now we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation here uh, maybe probably next week, and then we're going to kind of come back to this particular right here. But I don't want to go too far into it because I want you to stay with what he says that sin has, has, ha has caused us to, to be. It has caused us to be spiritually dead. Now all of us are born physically into this world alive. If you weren't born alive, you wouldn't be here. So we were all born alive. We were born with a physical heartbeat. We were born with a physical ability to receive nourishment. Our bodies were born with the capacity to grow. We're all born physically alive and all of those things that come with it. But Scripture says that we are all born spiritually dead. Mm. And we inherited that spiritual deadness from our spiritual ancestor who was Adam. For in Adam, because Adam, our spiritual ancestor, and he sinned, and he passed that down through generations to us, because we are all in that ancestral line, in Adam, we have no spiritual heartbeat. We have no spiritual breath. We have no capacity for spiritual nourishment. We have no capacity for spiritual growth. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Now in the Bible, death is spoken of in a lot of different ways. It's used metaphorically. As, by the way, if, if you really want to ruin a party, just go to a party and when you walk in say, let's talk about death tonight. Nobody wants to do that. But the Bible speaks about it quite often in a lot of different ways. One of the ways death is spoken of is as a penalty for sin. Mm. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It is talking about this spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. Sometimes death is spoken of as a person. It's, it's personified, if you will, as if it was a real person in the way that it acts toward us. Romans 5.21, he says, For if by the transgression of one, speaking of Adam, death reigned, death is reigning here. It's personifying death as if death is a, a king, a, a, a despot, and it is reigning over us. He says, death reigned much more through those who receive the abundance of grace. The gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So death is a penalty, but death is sometimes visual, visual uh, personified as something that is reigning and is ruling over us. We are its captive. And the third way that it is spoken of sometimes is that death is like a place. In Ephesians 2.1, 
He says we are dead, where? In trespasses and sins. This is almost as if these trespasses and sins are a place or a location, and in trespasses and sin is where death abides. In fact, that is exactly what it means. The grammatical construction in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, indicates that death is being referred to in this text as a location, as a sphere. It is in Greek grammar, in the, it's the dative of location, and sometimes it's called the locative case, okay? So it, it's, it, when this is used, it's referring to, sometimes physically, sometimes metaphorically, as something that is a sphere of influence. It's a, it's a, it's a location. It's a place. It's a, and, pl- it's a place of death. So, so think South Lake, only worse. Just right, like, <laughs> even worse than that. Whatever. I don't know what that means. So, here we are. Okay, so you, are you getting this? Death is a penalty. Death is a person. Death is sometimes a place. It's that sphere in which we are living in trespasses and sins, and in that sphere, death is reigning. That's us in our unchrist state. Mm. But go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. Once again, it is a dative of location. It's the locative case, which means it's viewing Christ as a sphere of influence. For those who are in the sphere of Christ, there is no condemnation. Why, he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from what? The law of sin and death. death. So where one time we lived in our natural state, in a place of trespasses and sins in that sphere where death reigned, now when we come to Christ, we are transferred to a new sphere. We are in Christ now, no longer in trespasses and sins. Now we are in Christ where death no longer reigns because we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Isn't that good news? Great. So so these two spheres are always in operation. Now, with that in mind, that there is the sphere of death in trespasses and sins, and there is the sphere of life in Christ Jesus, go back to the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. Because I fully believe that the Holy Spirit through Paul is building this theology in Ephesians based upon the very words of Jesus. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about two births. He's talking about physical birth. He's talking about spiritual birth. And he says you must be born again. And, and that phraseology, you know, is kind of fallen into ill repute. And there are a lot of people that call themselves Christians today, but they say, I'm certainly not born again. Well, Jesus says if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It's just a matter of understanding what he means by that. And in verse 5 of chapter 3, he said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been some who have committed uh, interpretive suicide by trying to say that birth by the water is referring to baptism. That is about stupid. No, that is about stupid. There is absolutely no hermeneutical basis upon which to make that, that statement. It is obvious in the text that Jesus is talking about two births. He's talking about physical birth. 
and he's talking about spiritual birth. To be born of the water, referring to the amniotic fluid, we're all born of water, are we not? And when the water breaks, the birth is going to happen. Ancient cultures have always understood this just as well as we do. So Jesus said, unless you're born of the water, in other words, you have to be born physically before you can be born spiritually. But he says, if, if you're only born of the water and you're not born again, you're not born of the Spirit, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I, I, one preacher used to say it this way, if you're born once physically, you, you die, die twice. twice. You die physically and you die eternally. If you're born twice, physically and spiritually, you only die once, and that's physically, and you live eternally, spiritually. Did you get all that? And so all of this makes sense because Jesus is comparing and contrasting this physical birth with spiritual birth, okay? To enter the kingdom of God, you must experience that being born again. Why? Because we are born of the water in the sphere of trespasses and sins, which is death. So therefore, we must be born of the Spirit so that we can be moved into the sphere in Christ so we can be set free from the law of sin and death. This is important that we understand this. It is important that you understand the total depravity and our death in and of ourselves because of sin or you will never fully appreciate God's grace. Amen. Never be able to appreciate God's grace. Let me give you an illustration. If you see a guy... And he believes he's wealthy. He thinks he's wealthy because the last time he looked, his bank account was very healthy. I got lots of money. And it's lunchtime and you've got two bologna sandwiches. And so you come up to this dude and you say, you know, I don't need both of these sandwiches here. You can have one of my sandwiches. You can have one of my bologna sandwiches. Now, he's not going to appreciate your bologna sandwich a whole lot. Either. I mean, I appreciate a bologna sandwich. I grew up on it. I, I, I can be honest. If, if I ever become a millionaire, I'll, I'll eat your bologna sandwich. I, well, he's like I, Mikey. He'll eat anything. I love bologna sandwiches. But, but I did learn when you, when you fry bologna, you've got to cut it. you got to right? cut it, right? Otherwise, it, it does up. this, and that, that doesn't work. You throw an egg on that with some cheese? You want, you want to you, lay flat, okay? So here you are. You're, you've offered him a bologna sandwich, and he's thinking, dude, why would I want to eat your nasty parts as parts squeezed together bologna sandwich? I can go to any restaurant and eat anything I want. But you see, <laughs> what? <laughs> I, just, I was thinking, you know, someone told me that, that, that bologna is just hot dog pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It's hot dog, pancakes. hot dog pancakes. They all kind of consist of the same material, don't they? I'm, okay. I'm down for it. It's all the leftovers. I'm okay. here for it. Folks, this is really hard to recover Ooh. from this. This is, this, is, this is why I'm a good guy to let him be up here with me. <laughs> but see, what he doesn't know, what this dude does not realize is that he is flat broke because somebody has just committed electronic fraud and has cleaned him out. He thinks it's all there, but it's not. He is flat broke and does not even know it. That's why he has no appreciation for your bologna sandwich. But give it a little bit of time and his house is gone. He's been evicted because he can't make the mortgage payment because he has no money. His Mercedes has been taken. It's been hauled off. Everything is gone and he's living underneath a bridge, starving to death. And you come along and offer him a bologna sandwich and he's going to have a whole different level of appreciation. Mm. Because you see, it all has to do with how he views his condition. Yep. In both scenarios, he's flat broke. In one of them, he just doesn't know it. Yep. But in the other one, he fully knows it. Now, let me give you a truth. 
Your view of yourself and your view of grace have an inverse relationship. As your view of yourself goes up, your view of God's grace toward you goes down. Because as you get better, you need grace less in your own thinking. But as your view of yourself goes down, your view of God's grace goes up to a whole different level. And where we ought to, every single one of us, live our lives is have a totally depraved view of ourselves from God's perspective so that we can glory in the fullness of the grace of God. You see, folks, churches are filled today with people who have too high a view of themselves and because of that, they have too low a view of the grace of God. Mm. The second thing is you can't understand the dimensions of God's love until you understand the depth of man's depravity. Romans 5, verse 6 through 9. says, For while we were still helpless, that's why we were in dead in trespasses and sins, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly. That's, that's us. us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For a good man, someone would dare even to die. Now, hold on to those two phrases. One would hardly die for a righteous man, but maybe for a good man, someone would die. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, here, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now what Paul is doing is setting up a scenario here between the human perspective and the divine perspective. And I'll do this, try to do this real quickly. From the human perspective, we see people around us, and from our human perspective, they look righteous. I mean, they're doing religious things, they're doing spiritual things, they're, they, you know, they're praying, they're, they're, all of those kinds of things. This is His righteous purchase. And Paul says... Okay, if you see someone like that that just looks righteous, would you die for them? He says, hardly. I mean, every now and then somebody might, somebody might be crazy enough, but no, they wouldn't die for that righteous person. Now, here's what we would do. We would step back and we'd talk about how unfair it was. Right? Oh, that's horrible that that righteous person was killed. But would we step up and say... I'll die for him. Hmm. Not likely for a righteous person. Then he goes on, well, what about a good man? He said, well, for a good man, perhaps someone would. You see, what's a good man? Well, a righteous man is one that does all these righteous things, right? What's a good man? Well, a good man is someone who does all kinds of good things for other people. You know, they're always there to mow your grass. They're always there to give you a lift. They're always there to change your tires. I mean, they're just a good dude, you know? They don't ruffle feathers. They just do good things for others. Would, you, would someone die for a good man? It's like you. Yeah, never, yeah never, exactly, never, like me. Never ruffle any feathers? I don't ever ruffle feathers. Never do any None, of that? Nothing, no. A good man. Would you, would you die? He said, well, perhaps. You know, because we value that. I mean, this righteous dude, it would be unfair, but I ain't giving up my life for him. No, but this good guy that did everything for everybody else, maybe someone would step forward and say, that's just not right. Can't have I'll die that. for him. But here's the point. When Jesus died on the cross, the rest of the text is, which scenario was Jesus living out? Was he dying for a righteous person? No. We're unrighteous. 
dead in trespasses and sin. Was he dying for good people? No. None of us are good at all. We all have a depraved nature. So Jesus went a step beyond. He didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for good people. He died for us. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you getting this? Mm. In verse 10, he says, while we were still God's enemies, God demonstrated his love toward us. That's right. By dying for us. You see, he didn't die for the righteous because of his love. He didn't die for the good because of his love. He died for the depraved. You and me. Thank the Lord. Because of his love. Mm. And if you don't get that, if you don't get your level of depravity, you will never understand the depth of the love of God. Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 18 19, he says that we would come to the understanding of the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of God for us. That can't happen until you acknowledge and embrace the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your own depravity. Dead in trespasses and sins. And when you get that, then you're going to have a great appreciation for the grace of God. You're going to have a great appreciation for the love of God. See, we're not talking about sin here just to make everybody feel good. We were talking about sin because we want you to fall in love with Jesus. That's right. We want you to bow before Him in adoration and worship for the magnificent grace that He has given to each and every mm. one of us mm. who come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. And the third thing, we'll wrap it up. Is that you can't understand the degree of Christ's suffering. You know, before I jump into this, I said this first service, just listening to those two parts, I, it, it is fitting is the right word because it wasn't planned this way at all. It is fitting that we're talking about this on Memorial Day. Um, you know, it, it's, it, when we think about Memorial Day, I think there's this sort of underlying thought that these men and women who paid the ultimate price did it for the good of humanity. And the reality is humanity is not good. Hmm. And to me, that only elevates their sacrifice. It only elevates the meaning of why we, why we recognize Memorial Day. And so just a kind of an interesting thought fitting for our time this morning. Number three, you can't understand the degree of Christ's suffering. So in John's Gospel, very beginning of John's Gospel, we learn of an additional person named John, not the same as the author. Uh, John the Apostle wrote John. He talks about another man named John the Baptizer, not John the Southern Baptist. He would have John eaten bologna because he ate locusts. Exactly. Which is, yeah. Anybody exactly. that eat locusts would eat bologna. Would eat bologna. I wonder what locusts taste like. I don't know. I'm, I eat bologna. I ate all so. the chicatas that are coming out on the East Coast. People are... Yeah. Yeah. Frying them and putting them in chocolate. That's that. That go. I go. That goes beyond my scope, y'all. I'll eat your bologna sandwiches. I'm not eating your 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 locusts. <laughs> Sorry. So John the Baptist comes on the scene talking about Jesus. He's announcing the coming of Jesus, and he says, "Behold, look." That's what the Greek word means. Look over there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Takes away the sins of the whole world. Now, how does he accomplish that? How does he do that? John tells us, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John comes along in 1 John 2.2 and he tells us, he says in 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And, and I, you know, I would hearken back a little bit for a moment to our first two weeks here in this study when we talked about postmodernism and critical theory and how postmodernism seeks to deconstruct language 
to remove language, to deconstruct it. And what I would say to that is, is just in light of that, as the people of God, there are words that we must hold on to. Mm-hmm. We have to protect our language. Our language is important with the way that we describe certain theological convictions. These words matter. It's a $1,000 seminary word. It sounds big and smart. It's an important word, propitiation. There's not really a replacement for it. And so what does it mean, though? What does propitiation mean? If you were here for our study on Christology, the doctrine of Christ, a few weeks ago, James actually unpacked this term. And and essentially, what propitiation indicates to us is that God, in the Scripture, has revealed His hatred for sin. It says that His fury and His wrath are burning against sin. He hates it. He hates it with a fiery passion, literally. And and when Jesus died on the cross in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, what James just talked about, and, and when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When that happened, He took upon Himself the fullness of the wrath and the fury of God against the sin that we were guilty of. He became the target, in other words, of that wrath. He stood in my place and in your place and absorbed God's wrath and fury against sin so that we would not have to suffer, right? This is what theologians call the great exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous. In fact, uh, Peter talks about this, 1 Peter 3.18. I think we discussed this last Sunday in our our Bible studies. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, we are told of a coming Messiah, and a coming anointed one that was going to suffer, specifically suffer. In fact, Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is about this suffering servant that is going to come and die for his people. And not just die, but be crushed, be led to the slaughter like a lamb, it says, that he will bear the fullness and the weight of God's wrath against sin. And so Peter comes along and he says, this Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous, because he never sinned, he's fully innocent, perfect in every way, for the unrighteous, us, who are not perfect, who are totally depraved, who are capable of the highest forms of evil and not capable of any good in its purest sense, He stands in our place and takes upon him that wrath that is meant for us. Now listen, that verse, that passage, does not mean nearly what it means if you don't view sin for what it really is. If sin for you is just like, yeah, something God really doesn't prefer you do, right? If you have these druthers. If God could choose, he would say, probably don't do that. No, that's not what the Bible says about God's disposition towards sin. God is not just like trying to encourage you away from sin. God hates sin. God wants to destroy sin with every fiber of his fiery wrath. And Jesus stands in our place and takes that upon himself. We don't, we're not in touch with then the suffering of Christ if we don't understand that. When, when Jesus in the gospel says, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? That makes a lot more sense when you understand what's happening to him in that moment. When he's taking upon the chastisement, the scripture says, against sin that God has. We watch movies like The Passion and we think of Jesus' suffering, of the physical suffering, and it was horrible. Yes, no doubt. I mean, it was egregious. It was an iota of the full suffering that Jesus took of the wrath of God for taking my sin upon me. In that moment when Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was in that moment in time when God turned his back upon the Son of Jesus, Son of God, because he took that wrath upon himself. He that was the suffering of the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Sin is horrific. And so when you understand it, you can understand what Christ endured for us. Now, Peter goes on, actually. And we're going to talk about this, this next passage uh, next Sunday, 1 Peter 4.1. He says, since therefore... So he's going back to 3.18. He says, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He comes to verse, four in cha- or verse 1 in chapter 4. He says, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. And then he gives us a command. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Now let me ask you, how can you arm yourself with this same way of thinking if you don't even understand it? If you're not even in touch with the suffering of Christ? And furthermore, what does he mean by that? What is he saying to us when he says that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you will arm yourself with this same way of thinking, then when you walk into persecution and suffering for your faith, which Peter's audience was entrenched in, they were dying and being tortured for their faith, when you walk into a moment of persecution and suffering and trial and you arm yourself with this way of thinking, whatever you are facing, you can confidently say, this is nothing in comparison to what my Savior endured. So I will go through it. Am I willing to stand for principle in Christ in this environment because of understanding what he suffered for me, yeah. perhaps I might Yeah. if I fully understand that. If I don't fully understand it, I won't. I'll please people. I'll say whatever it takes to get them off my back. I won't stand to be faithful because I don't want to suffer. But when I can get an iota of the suffering of Christ, it, taking that mind upon myself, I may be willing to go out in that world and actually stand for truth. And folks, we don't, have an, we don't have a clue of what suffering is. I got called names on Facebook. Shut up. <laughs> Seriously. Shut it up, man. I, that's, that is not even, that, is not, that doesn't even touch the hem of the garment of suffering that is happening today in other parts of the world in, in our faith. We, we have no idea. Did you know that the global definition of poverty, this is a fun one. If you take that definition there's not a single place in the United States that's actually in poverty. Now, think about that for a minute. As bad as certain places are in the United States, it's not even considered poverty, poverty by a world definition. We have it so good here. We have it so good in the West. Our view of persecution and suffering is this like cheap knockoff version of what it really means. So here's what it means then. When you get into those moments, suck it up, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, and understand this isn't anything remotely close to what Jesus went through. He is worthy. I will suffer. If we do that, we stand for truth. Again, the church accomplishes a lot of great things. Do you understand why the, the doctrine of total depravity is so important? why it matters to us. You can't understand the, the depth of God's grace. We talk about grace all the time, but what, what use is it if we don't really need it, if we live like we don't need it? You can't understand the dimensions of God's love. You can't understand the degree of suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. We have to understand total depravity if we're going to connect to these things. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, we praise you that that you are in your perfect state, Lord, willing to humble yourself to the form of a servant, not just to relate to us, but to die for us in our most unworthy state. We thank you that there is 
There is no sin, there is no lie, there is no deception that is veiled from your eyes, and yet even knowing all of the things that we have done, you chose to die in our place, that we might have life and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, as we go through our week, be in touch with the doctrine of total depravity, not to draw us down, but to draw grace up to raise grace to its rightful and beautiful place in our lives. I thank you for all those who are here today who perhaps don't know your son and who are still in that, the depth of that sin that, they, that maybe they think that they've kept hidden. And, and perhaps your Holy Spirit is, is speaking to their heart this morning, revealing to them that they are known. The depths of their sin is known. And yet, the depths of your forgiveness is greater. And I pray that they would bow in submission before you today and that they would take that first step into eternity, forgiven and free, and in a place where they're, where they're free to be imperfect and, and work out those problems here at this church. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Yeah, everybody, yeah, yeah have, have a good day. <laughs> you slugs. Have a good day. <laughs>